Would you pray with me? Lord, it's no small task to open your word, to read it, to examine it, to find out what you are saying to us and how it relates to what you've always said. Lord, you're a good God. You're trustworthy. You uphold justice and righteousness. And Father, those things are true whether we're currently experiencing them in our own lives or not. The hope is that one day you will make all things right. And in the meantime, you will give us the one thing we need more than anything to, to sustain our own lives, and that is your presence. Father, thank you for your word. Would your word do what it does best, challenge us where we need to be challenged, and encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Father, give us a very incredibly robust view of your son this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to the book of Galatians. I'm going to start reading in verse 21. Galatians chapter 4. Did I say the chapter? Just the verse, sorry. Chapter 4, verse 21. Paul writes this, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. But just as at that time he who bore according to the flesh persecuted him, who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not subject again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you, you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. 
For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourselves. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. I'm so thankful for large print. And saw an eye doctor, and he said the same thing. Oh, man. The very first thing I have written down here is absolutely convicting of the last 30 minutes of my life. Maybe I'll preach a different sermon. My uh, son was struggling a little bit. My wife is out of town, and uh, I snapped at someone a minute ago. They totally understood why, probably forgave me as it was happening. But it still irritates me, because I would like to not sin against people, regardless of why I'm stressed out. And what happens is, in moments like that, surprises We see a little bit of some of the mess inside of us and where we need the Lord to continue to grow us up. Sometimes it leaks out of our elbows, as my wife would say. (laughs) In writing to the Galatians, um, Paul is talking about something. He uses an allegory at the end of chapter 4, which is very rare for him. Probably means that the opponent's or opponent uh, in Galatia used an allegory also. And he's reminding them that they're children of God. I know most of you in this room. Not all of you. I know some of you better than others. I think you know this. I think you know that God calls you his daughter or his son. So be encouraged. And notice that we have this letter. There were a lot of letters written to and from Christians in the first century. And some of them made it into what we can now call the Bible, and some did not. I would actually really like to have some of the other letters that are not in the Scriptures. In the Holy Spirit's guiding, this letter is important. And why? I think that we think... Teaching someone religious practice saves them and grows them up is like kind of dangerous. You're like, you know. And in a moment of clarity, we might say, Paul, is this dangerous? And he would say, yes. And we would say, grave danger? And he would say, is there another kind? That's a few good men to quote. If you call Jesus Lord, then you are his, and he's yours. You're fully accepted, loved, found, liked, forgiven. And when you act like 
those things are true because of what you do religiously, then you're acting like an employee or a slave and not a child. I didn't do the benediction in the first service because my son was upset and he needed me. And everyone in that room understood and all of you understand. And I'm like, (laughs) I really want to give the benediction. I think benedictions are important. It's how the people of God leave the worship of God and go out into the world as his agents of love and grace and mercy. I think benedictions are really important and I didn't do it because my son needed me. And when I submit to extra-biblical or even biblical rituals and rules and think or believe or feel like, that probably is really important to God that I did that. He probably accepts me even more because I knelt when I prayed that morning, because I spent some extra time in the Scripture, because I made sure to not check my work email on a Sunday. I'm acting like I'm not his child, but I'm an employee Both my uh, dad and mom started companies when I was growing up, uh, multiple ones, actually. And I worked for my mom for one day, which, as I was preaching this in the first service, I realized might be less coincidental than I thought, that I only worked for her for one day. But at no point in working for her, even though she paid me, did I stop being her child. And every employee knew it, and they weren't weird about it. It was just one day I was answering the phones. It's fine. But they looked at me differently. And what Paul is saying to the Galatians is, if you submit to, you must worship on this day and not this day. You must rest in this way. You must receive this ritual marking. That is what, maybe it's not what saves you, but it is what grows you up. That's acting like an employee and not a child. What makes you okay with God? What makes you accepted by God? What it's Jesus and nothing else. There's nothing on top of that that saves you. There's nothing on top of that that grows you up. Do you get to participate with the Holy Spirit as it matures you? Yes. Is that even a gift in and of itself? Yes. In John Barclay's um, interaction with Paul, he says that the, the move of one who understands the Christ gift is trust. Then thankfulness, then obedience. If we reverse it, it's not a gift anymore, which is actually what uh, chapter 5 starts to get into, but chapter 4 is allegorically telling us. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Not to revert to Abraham's promise, but to complete the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. That's what Paul's getting at when he quotes Isaiah 54. That's the part in quotes in chapter 4. This is not a reverting to that. It's a completing of that. 
And free children stand in Christ. And it's not just stand. What does he say? For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. And this is where Christianity is subversive and weird, but you know that it's, you know the truth of it. Standing firm because of what Christ did and standing firm because you're proud of yourself look the same from 50 yards, but one of those is life-giving and one of those is life-draining, life-killing, literally. And if you prayed this morning, you did that because you've received a gift, right? The gift of Jesus in you. Not to get the gift. And that looks similar, but it is altogether different. One of those is a one, life-giving, and one of those is a zero, life-killing. And I'm literally preaching to the choir, right? Because you're the choir this morning. You know that the ordinary means of grace, whether that term's available is, is familiar to you or not, singing to God, praying to God, receiving the prayers of the people of God. These are the ways that we integrate what we believe and however much we understand of God's word into our life. And it comforts us, it convicts us, it challenges us. We don't do it in order to get. We do it because we've received the gift. In Greek, the word for grace is gift. I know it's a different word in English. In Greek, it's not. Charis. Gift. They're also extraordinary means of grace. We call them sacraments. We will receive one of those. If you're a Christ follower, you will receive supernatural nourishment for your life in Christ here and out in the world. And the way that we stand firm is remembering that it's not those things. And, and Paul pushes the envelope really hard here in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Now, if you're familiar with Paul and you've read the book of Ephesians, you're like, this sounds really different. It's because we, he's opposing a teaching. He's not offering a new teaching about grace that disagrees with his other letter. He's opposing someone who's saying, yes, you've trusted Christ and that's great, but now you need to receive circumcision in order to be a full Christian. Paul, is this dangerous? Yes. Would you describe it as grave danger? Is there another kind? He's waving his arms. He's writing as passionately as he writes, and he's a passionate writer. The actual outline of this sermon series ended with verse 12, and I decided not to end it on verse 12 because I didn't want the last thing that you heard as the word of God, as the word of God was read was, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. But there it is in the text. Paul, how dangerous is it to believe that we can complete our justification or that we can grow up in Christ through religious activity or especially religious ritual? 
whatever the strongest adverb is you can use, is how dangerous he's saying that it is. Even as he's implying that standing firm in Christ is what we do. Not implying, stating. Which means trusting Christ with our mind and with our decisions. Which means expressing our thanks to him together and individually and then obeying him. We do take action as Christians. I did get to repent to the person that I snapped at this morning, and I'm so glad, so glad that I know what to do as a Christian when I sin. But I don't do that to make God happy. I do that because I have received the gift, which is Christ in me. I was looking yesterday for uh, a good image of Gandalf on the bridge at Kazadum. Old, old wizard standing in between a demon of the underworld who had a whip and a sword. And I didn't find one that I liked, and I looked for way longer than I needed to. Why is Gandalf able to stand firm? Because he's so tall. Because his staff is so impressive. Because Glamdring, his sword, oh yeah, that's Gandalf's sword's name. Yeah, I'm a dork. Get over it. I'm so, sorry. should never say get over it sermon. <laughs> Why does he stand firm? Why is he able to stand firm? Because of the light that was given to him. Why do we stand firm in Christ? Because we're awesome. No. We stand firm because of who he is in us. And standing firm is any time that you resist temptation. Standing firm is any time that you obey him because you trust him, because you're thankful for the work that he did. And you're thankful for his guidance in life. Standing firm is when you ask for forgiveness when you don't do those things. Free children stand firm in Christ and they mature. When Paul says, you were running well, he's talking about their growth, which meant remembering what Christ did in trust and in thanks and then in obedience. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Hindered is probably a play on words to the point that he's making about circumcision and uncircumcision. In high school, I played basketball, and I was the most improved in speed every year. Do the math. That means I was really slow. I can tell you my times if you're curious. They're really bad. But I remember working to get faster because I wanted to play. And I remember when I could run without getting tired. And it felt amazing. C.S. Lewis says that when we get to heaven, we're probably just going to run for a long time because it will just feel good to run. That's how Paul likens maturity, is running that uh, actually is enjoyable. I don't know how many of you that's even possible for. Doesn't seem like it is for me anymore, and it's probably not coming back. But we can still accept that that's what growing up as a Christian is like. It's actually a joy-filling and expanding experience. You are running well. They had trusted Jesus. They were learning to adore him as an activity of the mind and heart. 
and they were obeying him, and then they started to believe a false gospel. And Paul says, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. This is a point that Paul makes in different ways throughout his letters, um, probably the most... Well, elsewhere in the New Testament, this is called testing the spirits. Where we check on our convictions, we check on the things we believe, we ask others, do you think this is from the Lord? I'm going to share something with you. Our elders are imperfect, and I believe they are dramatically underutilized by you. When you're making a decision, I know you don't have time with all of your decisions because you literally make hundreds of decisions every week, some big, some medium, some small. We should ask one another, and especially those that you have called to lead us in following Christ, do you think this is from the Lord? This idea, be it big, medium, or small? This persuasion, the teaching, is not from him who calls you, verse 8. And then he says, verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Like to bake bread, baked some last week, ate four pieces last night. Three and a half cups of flour, one and three quarters cups of warm water, two teaspoons of salt, and how much yeast? Two teaspoons. Tiny, tiny bit. You can't see it once it's mixed in. Is it going to become bread without that? No. I've been putting it in a Dutch oven in the oven before I turn it on, leaving the lid on for about 30 minutes and taking the lid off until it's the perfect color. It's been working pretty well. Paul's using the illustration because we don't think it's dangerous. We don't think this little bit of bad teaching can harm us. And he's saying it's so much more effective at harm than you think. That's the point of verse 9. And the sad thing, and this is reading verses 7 through 12 a little bit indirectly, and this is where the, the not-so-great letters of the Bible are just as, if not more instructive, than the great letters, the ones that tell us lofty things about Christ's role as prophet, priest, and king. This one's a little more angry. We talk about circumcision a lot more, but if we understand what Paul's opposing, we get what he was teaching, which is that we are being matured by the Holy Spirit right now in love of him and neighbor. Which means you and I do not ever get to say, that's just how I am when someone confronts us. If that doesn't sting, I didn't say it clearly. When your spouse or your child or your employee or your employer calls you out on something and they're being truthful, it's a a real thing that happened, you don't get to say, that's just how I am. Because the Holy Spirit is in you, growing you up. Now, you can nuance it, right? And it's fine. Maybe it's fine, depending on the person you're talking with. You can say, you know, I've been this way for a long time, and change is going to be tricky. But, okay. That's what Christians say, because the Holy Spirit is in us, growing us and maturing us. It's not us who's maturing ourselves, though we get to participate with the Spirit. 
This means that you should be able to describe how you're repenting to anyone close to you at any given time. Not because that merits something before God, but because that's the joyful with God life, is growing up in loving him and the neighbors he's put into our life. I have three children. I can tell you, and it's very different, because they are different. I can tell you with each of them how I'm both praying and trying to actively love them better than I did last year. And that sounds like a religion of activity, but it's not. It's because Christ has saved me and is now growing me up and participating with him is called not resisting the spirit. And it's such a lovely gift. Free children stand firm in Christ and they mature for ourselves. God did this so that you would be comforted. Yes, not first. First, he did it for his glory because he exists and is worthy of worship. Second, he did it for you. Nope. Second is for others. So that you are grown up as a good neighbor in this crazy world. The thing that's bugging me so much today is not our disagreements, but I don't think people even want to understand why we disagree with one another. Be it about how you educate your children or politics or whatever else. I don't even, it's far as I can tell, not you people, you're all great, but out there. It doesn't even seem like people want to understand the other side. Regardless of that, we come back to the text and to the gospel. And we're so thankful that God saved us for his glory and for the good of neighbor. And maybe the 130 of us can't do as much good in this area as we would like to. But we can do a little bit. For you were called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Paul talks about this in Romans 14 a little bit more explicitly. We have this lovely, lovely opportunity, regardless of how much people out in the world even want to understand one another, much less are capable of it, we get to guard one another's consciences. That's a lovely opportunity for you to act like a Christian with these people. Did you know that we have people in this room that think that private Christian education is really important? And we have other people that think that public education is the best way, and other people think that private non-Christian education is the best way, and other people that think that homeschooling is the best way. And you know what? We get to continue learning from one another and expressing our opinion about that, but doing so with kindness in a way that guards one another's consciences. I chose a medium example because you hear the aggressive examples all the time in other places, and sometimes I spare you from those. In issues of food and drink, in issues of politics, in issues about education, we get to guard one another's conscience, and in, such, in, and in so doing, we're modeling something to the world that's absolutely weird which is a community marked first by allegiance to Jesus and then by affection for one another that displays itself through protecting one another's consciences.
through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Quoting Leviticus, quoting Jesus, who quoted Leviticus. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Because that's the alternative. Paul's going to talk more about it in the rest of chapter 5. To not trust Jesus means that we're just trust, that we're trusting ourselves instead of him and we will inevitably just infight and harm and judge one another, which is the opposite of love. Free children, stand firm in Christ as he matures us for his glory and the good of our neighbor because he is that good and loving. Not only accepts us, but grows us up. Thank God. I hang out with Rick and Lynn Schoenhardt pretty regularly. They are in their 90s. They have an argument almost every time I meet with them, and they laugh during the argument. Lynn said to him a few months ago, Rick, did you hear what I said? And he goes, no. And he laughed. And I was like, if Rachel said that to me, and I said that back to her, I'm not at all sure we would be laughing. And it's not because they're old. I know some really nasty old people. It's because they're Christians, and the Holy Spirit has matured them in how they relate with one another. Because God is that good that he not only calls us to himself, justifies, adopts us, but he sets us free into love of him and the people God has put into our lives. Which is very, very, very good news. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we are so thankful that you call us your children, your daughters, and your sons. Would you enable and empower us to stand firm? in you. Holy Spirit, would you enliven our hearts? Fill them with the joy that we have because of your Son. Fill us with thankfulness and then guide us as your followers. Amen.